Well, good morning, everyone. Let's peel back the curtain and rewind the tape to March 19th. I'm here at the church, and I needed to provide an update to pastors David and Andrew on something, and they were in a meeting in Pastor David's office. So I went and knocked on the door, and I got the signal to come on in. And after providing the update, uh, David leans in, and he says, Brian, I'm actually glad that you're in here because I have a question for you. And then he drops this bomb on me. Is there a book of the Bible that you would not want to preach on? Because I have been uh, wanting to give you another sermon to preach sometime in the near future. So my mind starts racing through all the books of the Bible uh, that Miss Marie helped teach our, our elementary school kids. I'm thinking about maybe it's Rahab in the book of Judges, or is he going to ask me to preach on one of the minor prophets like Malachi or Habakkuk or something like that? And then the gauntlet drops. What would you think about preaching on the Song of Solomon. <laughs> I froze, and uh, instantly I think that I said outwardly uh, yes, um, that I would be happy to do that, but inwardly I was wondering why on earth I was the one that was chosen uh, to draw the short straw. Well, today as we continue in our one, sermon, one Story Sermon series, where we have been marching through the books of the Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation, we are going to be camping out, and you guessed it, the Song of Solomon. And I would like to also preface this message by stating that I don't feel like a scholar on any book of the Bible, uh, let alone this one. And as a matter of fact, our minister of discipleship, David Holcomb, uh, he preached last Sunday's message on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, he was in his ordination process and at uh, Presbytery, as he was wrapping up the process, somebody from the, from the floor asked him the question, David, if you were to preach on the, the book of Song of Solomon, how would you go about doing so? And his response was very carefully, and uh, I thought that was really great. Well, the book of Song of Solomon has been interpreted so many ways over the centuries. Uh, some have interpreted it literally, some have interpreted it allegorically or typologically. Many well-intentioned Bible-believing folks disagree on how to interpret this book, and I hope to draw a few ideas um, out of maybe the more traditional or conservative approach as we draw some practical practical advice for those of us who are married, and also some allegorical uh, things as well. I'd like to also warn anyone who might be worshiping at home with uh, some children that while I don't intend to make this an R-rated sermon by any stretch of the imagination, I do feel I would be remiss if I did not uh, speak to a few of the things that are presented in this book that God lines out and blesses and calls holy. So perhaps you can pause the live stream and go pull up a, a nice Right Now Media option for your family uh, and, and for your kids, maybe on a different device, and then come back and return and worship with us in a moment. Well, the Song of Solomon is also known as the Song of Songs in some translations of the Bible. And not ten, it's not actually a book. It's instead a poem, a love poem or a love song between two lovers. It is not meant to be parsed and separated, but instead it's meant to be read as one entire unit. And we learn from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, that Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs, and he composed 1,005 songs. And the title, The Song of Solomon, is actually a Hebrew idiom. It would be the equivalent of something like King of Kings. So it means the greatest thing, or in other words, it is the greatest of Solomon's 1,005 songs. To his collection of songs, it was the equivalent of perhaps the Sistine Chapel for Michelangelo, or Symphony, Symphony No. 5 for Beethoven. The Song of Solomon is traditionally assumed to be written by a young Solomon. It provides lyrical insight into the depth of human love and desire, 
And like the other areas of wisdom discussed in some of the other books of the Bible uh, that are poetry, the Song of Solomon is meant to describe practical aspects of God's intentions for his people. In this book, the emphasis is on the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, the beauty of the marriage union seen in the passionate pursuit of two characters named Lover, who we assume to be Solomon, and his beloved, Shulamite. While human relationships are described in other places in the wisdom literature, the Song of Solomon stands alone in its portrayal of human love and sexuality. And this book provides great wisdom for married couples on how to pursue one another, to love each other well using poetic imagery. Couples are given a model on how to speak words of affirmation, speak the fulfillment of their spouse, and to find delight in sexual intimacy. It is intertwined with poetry, romanticism, desire, and attraction that God intends for us to have for each other in our marriages. And in the Song of Solomon, we find eight chapters that contain 117 verses of a love song. This book also reveals the practical nature of the scripture, and it shows that God cares about all aspects of human existence. However, as with all other aspects of life in the fallen world, marriage is not intended to be the ultimate pursuit of God's children. While these relationships are a source of great joy and fulfillment, they are a mere shadow of the love that is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Today's marriage uh, message is not entirely about marriage, but I will spend a significant amount of time talking about marriage. So I hope that if you find yourself in a non-married category, whether it's you're in the single and ready to mingle phase, or you aspire to be married one day, or you're widowed or divorced, that there are lessons that can be learned for all of us together, who, that, that God loves each and every one of us desperately and seeks to be the true lover of our souls. Well, before we begin, I would like to tell you a little bit about my marriage. My wife, Casey, and I, we met in 2001 when I was 15 and she was 16. It was about eight months into our relationship of dating when one night I dropped the L word on her and I told her that I loved her. This was a special moment. It had weight and significance because I truly meant it. She hugged me and she held me tight and then in a moment of romanticism that can only be taken out of the movies, she said, and I love ice cream. Ice cream. That's right. Now, for those of you who have read Song of Solomon, this is not exactly the romantic catchphrase that is passed back and forth between lover and his beloved. But for Casey, that word love had significance. It had meaning. And it was a word that she would only use with somebody that she wanted to be in love with. And I continued for weeks and months and um, actually a couple years to let this beautiful redhead occasionally know that I did love her. And I told her that when she was ready, that she could say it back, hoping that one day she would. Well, fast forward two years into our relationship. I was home from my freshman year of college, and I had a church event that I told my pastor at my home church that I would help out with. And uh, Casey and I were a lot like other couples, especially before marriage, where, uh, and maybe even during marriage, where we were jealous of each other's time and anything that took time away from the limited amount of time that we had to see each other. The event at church ended, and we were in a car, uh, in her car, parked outside of my parents' house on a dark, rainy Saturday night. We were in a pretty, pretty heated argument about how I spend too much time doing churchy things, Little did she know that I would actually go on to become a youth pastor. But the list goes on and on. 
and honestly, I was probably in the wrong about all the other things that we were arguing about. But after a drug on and on, I finally got fed up, and in a hash, hasty, a rash, hasty decision, I said, well, if I'm not, if I'm doing all the wrong things, good luck finding Mr. Perfect. And I proceeded to get out of the car, slam the door behind me, and walk through the dark, rainy weather to the front porch of my parents' house. And then I heard the door open to her car. And like a scene out of a Nicholas Sparks movie, I heard Casey say, the reason that I'm so upset with you is because I love you and I just want to spend time with you. You what? You love me? And then we proceeded to hold hands in the rain with just enough room between us for Jesus to fit in. Of course. Well, first came love and then came marriage. And now here it is, 2020, and this is my family. You see, love is actually a really tricky thing. It leads us to one of God's greatest blessings for those of us who are called to marry. And I realize that there are a variety of people watching this message who have decades of marriage under your belt, some who are still in the honeymoon phase, some who might be engaged, and some who want to be one, married one day, and others who are perhaps even single or divorced. And I pray that no matter the stage that you're currently in, you will see God's words for us found in the Song of Solomon as a glimpse into the passion that can and should be found in our marriages, but also as a love that Christ has for his own bride, the church. In his book, Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas, he suggests that marriage is not actually meant to make us happy, but instead it's meant to make us holy. Now, if you're like me, you, were, you probably would not use the adjective holy to describe your marriage, uh, but there is this underlying truth behind, beyond the superficial romance that's depicted in pop culture. Luckily, we have a book of the Bible that gives us this idea that not only God is for marriage, but God also blessed us with physical intimacy that can and should enjoy, be enjoyed in a marital covenant. Much like our, many of our relationships in Western culture, there's actually a three-part act that occurs in the eight chapters of Song of Solomon. Within each one of these, I hope to also provide one piece of practical advice on how we can apply the truths found in God's word to our own marriages for how we can have a Christ-centered marriage. And the first of the scenes that we see as we open up the Song of Solomon is a falling in love. A falling in love. We are thrust into this depiction of marital love that reflects the love that, instruct, that um, instructs us in God's good design and points us to a faithful shepherd king right away. In verse 2 of chapter 1, it begins, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Here, we can learn that being passionate for someone is actually a good thing. Clearly, this woman feels strongly for her husband to be, and his name refers to his reputation that was far-reaching, that others loved him as well. Her delight is not just in his kisses, but they are also in his smell. He tastes good, he smells good, in other words, he showered and used body wash, or whatever the equivalent to Old Spice deodorant or polo black cologne was for the ancient, ancient Israelites. It is obvious that she feels like there is no man like her man. There is no king like her king. There is nothing wrong and everything right with what she feels. Her desires are not dirty. 
And as a matter of fact, sex is never wrong or sinful when it takes place God's way and for his glory. We find that she will wait until the time is right for these matters in later chapters. He is worth waiting for, and so is she. The woman also speaks of his reputation. A person is always more, much more than a physical appearance. If you find yourself in this perhaps single and ready to mingle category, and you find yourself where you're getting ready to introduce your uh, significant other to maybe friends or family members, I think it would be wise of you to seek out and to listen to the counsel of those people that you are introducing them to. Listen to the public opinion on what they say. Is he honest? Does she possess a Christ-like spirit? Does he have a bad temper? Is she financially responsible? Is she a flirt? Is he a playboy? Does he take joy in loving her sacrificially and work hard to understand her? We could carefully consider what others say and should about the other person that we date, and especially the person that we could consider marrying one day. We all have blind spots, and love can be a very big blind spot. Shulamite knew that this man was respected. He was known as a person of integrity and character. So I believe that the first nugget of wisdom that we can apply from the scriptures is that we can learn from Solomon and we can practice praising our spouse. Practice praising your spouse because I believe there is power in praising your spouse. We begin in this book of love poetry in verse 8 with Solomon calling his wife or his soon-to-be wife the most beautiful among all other women. And then he compares her to a female horse, which might seem odd to us, but let's hone in on the context a little here. The, this soon-to-be husband is telling his soon-to-be wife, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. In these verses, the husband is telling his future wife that there is no one like her. He tells his darling that, that she is like a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, most guys today would probably get smacked if we called our significant other or our spouse a, a horse. Um, but for her, she would have clearly understood this as a very high compliment. Pharaoh's chariot horses would have been stallions. A mare would have been a beautiful noble horse that would have been valued and exceptional in their midst. She would have been a beauty that would have garnered the immediate attention of every stallion in sight. So here she is being likened to the one and only woman in a land full of men, and she is stunningly beautiful woman at that. So if Solomon spoke such words of praise, should we not also do the same? What would it look like today if you took one of these suggestions and began to practice praising your spouse? Try some of these and see if it doesn't pay huge dividends for you. Maybe something like, good job, or you are wonderful. That was really great. You look gorgeous today. I appreciate all that you've done for me and our family. I'm glad that I married you. I wanted you today. I missed you today. I couldn't get you out of my mind today. I will always love you. I trust you. You make me feel good. I'm proud to be your spouse. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Let me just listen. Pray for me. I'm praying for you today. Thank you for loving me, or thank you for being my spouse. So, if in the first act of the Song of Solomon there was a falling in love, the next scene that we can find spelled out in the Song of Solomon 
is a uniting in love. So we move from a falling in love to now a uniting in love, from a girl who was struggling with her appearance and insecurities in chapter one to a radiant beauty that has now emerged. Shulamite has grown and matured in her self-confidence and her sense of self-worth because of her shepherd king, her husband-to-be. He has showered her with these words of great affection, and she knows that she is loved and is set free to love in return. Our song has moved from the king's palace back to the country and to Shulamite's home. It is the springtime, and love is in the air. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Shulamite actually had a bad dream, and apparently Solomon had returned to the city and left her alone in the countryside. In her dream, she went in search of the man that she loved and found him in verse 4. And her dream then gives way to this reality as she is reunited with her shepherd king. The time has come for the courting to end and all of a sudden for marriage to now be at hand and the celebration of their wedding will follow. In chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, we see that Solomon arrives for the wedding. And within the wedding, we see that there are a few different elements that transpire. And the first of those was that there was a public celebration. In chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, it says, What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon." When we gather for weddings, there is often a a great celebration where we have our friends and our family there, and that was certainly the case for Solomon and Shulamite. The wedding also contained a promise of protection. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, it says, Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. You see, Solomon had acquired a a myriad of people to promise to protect her. These royal bodyguards were a pledge and a promise of protection that will accompany their marriage until death separates them. These groomsmen are his closest and most trusted trusted confidants. In verses 9 and 10, we see that their wedding also uh, um, contained a pledge of love. King Solomon made himself a carriage from wood of Lebanon, He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Now this was clearly a pledge of love because Solomon made this carriage. And in some translations, it says that it was actually referred to as a sedan chair or the very best, that the very best materials money could could only buy. Solomon obtained the, the best wood from Lebanon One commentator noted that the timber from these forests were in great demand throughout the ancient Near East. He spared no expense for his bride. And lastly, we see as they united in love that their wedding had the approval of others. It says in verse 11, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon within the crowd, with the crowd with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. The young women of Jerusalem were now called the daughters of Zion. They were called to come out and to look intently upon King Solomon. The young women of Zion join in the celebration of the wedding and approve of the marriage. Solomon's mother also comes out and approves of the wedding. This was not only a day of happiness for the king and his queen, but also for all who shared in this wonderful event. 
There's much to be learned from this passage, but I believe that one commentator provided some extremely practical applications as he noted the differences for us between love and lust. Solomon and his wife seem to have really loved each other, but not lusted after each other. And this commentator provided the differences. They said that lust focuses on the self, as to where love focuses on the other. Lust leads to frustration, where you want something but you don't get it. Love leads to fulfillment. Lust continually wants more. Love brings satisfaction. Lust desires to gratify the sinful nature with things contrary to the Spirit as to where love desires to live by the Spirit. Lust excludes Christ as to where love includes Him. Lust sins to gratify the desires. Love seeks God to gain its desires. Lust avoids commitment and leads to tragedy as to where love commits to one another. In verses 6 through 11, we also see depictions of another wedding. It is not only about a uniting in love, but it also portrays imagery that shadows something much greater. It depicts a shepherd king coming for his beautiful virgin bride. He comes with his armies and he's wearing a crown fit for the occasion. This wedding scene pales in comparison to the one that is described in Revelation chapter 19. When King Jesus returns from heaven to get his bride, the church, he will not come from the wilderness, but instead will descend from heaven riding on a white horse. And his on his head will not be a simple crown, but will be many diadems because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this, pas- this passage should stir our hearts for this other wedding day that will consummate all of human history. Solomon goes on in chapter 4 from this to admire his bride's beauty. I can remember the doors flinging open at Pofftown Baptist Church on August 2nd, 2008. As those doors flung open, I admired my, my, my bride's beauty. She was radiant. She was glorious. And this was my bride. The beauty and the joy that flowed from that moment etched a picture that will be in my mind forever. However, it does not take long after the wedding day, after the honeymoon, where reality began, began to set, set in for us two young folks who really didn't know anything about marriage. We had certainly seen things that were modeled from our parents. Hollywood certainly says a big idea of what marriage is like. But what happens when the honeymoon comes to an end? In almost any marriage, there will come a moment where the bills have to be paid, Somebody says something that they shouldn't have. Work demands take a toll on quantity and quality time. Maybe somebody says something that they shouldn't have. Things simply just come unraveled. That's where I think that we can draw upon our next practical tip to have a Christ-centered marriage. And that's that if we were to have a vibrant Christ-centered marriage, we're going to have to deal with the foxes. Deal with the foxes. In chapter 2, verses 15, there's this very interesting verse that says, Catch the foxes for us the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. You see, little foxes are basically little sins that can tend to creep into our marriages, and Solomon is warning us to deal with these things that should not be there. Foxes in the ancient times were known to wreak havoc in the vineyards to eat the grapes that were meant to be enjoyed. These foxes represent some hindrances that threaten to spoil the relationship between Solomon and Shulamite. I believe that God wants to show a broken world the and hurting world, the greatness of Christ, and to do so in many ways, including the most challenging and intimate of all relationships, marriages. 
I believe that God wants us to show people around us who are enslaved to sin that he gave his one and only son to make a difference in our lives and to free us from the things of this world that can destroy us and cause us to stumble. I also believe that in order to have a Christ-centered marriage, marriage, we are going to have to create an assault on the things that Solomon refers to as these little foxes. It's probably not new news to you that men and women are different from each other. Author Amber uh, Dusick provides numerous illustrations on just how different men and women are. For example, making new friends. Women tend to interview each other and must learn, out, learn everything about each other's life histories, like we see here in this picture. She says, start from the beginning, and she says, well, I was born, and then proceeded to go on and on. Uh, so where men make friends like this, hey, I like a band. I like that same band. We're best friends, and that happens in a moment, matter of seconds. Or perhaps we're different because of the way that we go looking for things or finding things. Men will stand at the fridge and look for things for endless amounts of time to proceed and go on to proceed to call for help. If we're really desperate, we might actually tilt our head to view the area from a different angle, but not usually. As to where women look for things like this. See, you have to lift things, and then they go on to find it. Or what about sickness? This is how women act when they have a cold. Life resumes as normal. Nothing really changes other than perhaps just a little more tissue being used. Men have the sniffles and all of a sudden the world must stop. The old adage that men are from Mars and women are from Venus might not seem too far-fetched. We are sometimes polar opposites. We communicate differently. We see romance differently. We are wired differently. We see self-worth differently. We view the usage of time differently. We parent differently. And I could go on and on and on about the differences between us. But because of our differences, the little foxes can tend to creep into our marriages. A little fox could be a hurtful response, like what Miss Marie was teaching us about with the power of our tongue earlier. It could be saying something that we really should not have. It could be a wandering eye. It could be taking your spouse for granted. It could be addictions to substances or pornography. Pornography. My question for you is, what is a little fox that needs to be thrown out of your vineyard? I believe that God wants to make much of Jesus Christ in our marriages and our families. And that's why he gave us grace and commands us to give grace to others. A Christ-centered, God-focused marriage will be on the lookout for these marital varmints. And will eliminate them as much as possible. Little foxes are no match for the power of the gospel that is lived out by two spouses, transformed by the grace of God. The love of the gospel that the love that the gospel provides is so great that mighty waters cannot extinguish it. In chapter eight, verses seven, it says, "Many waters cannot quench love; neither can floods drown it." So if water cannot extinguish our love, then neither can the little foxes destroy it. But we must make sure that we are intentionally pulling those weeds that would seek to choke out the healthy fruit in our relationships. We must set up fences and create boundaries to keep the little foxes away from our vineyards. The Apostle Paul tells us what a vineyard that is cultivated, cultivated by love for, for Christ and for each other looks like. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4-8. through 8. Love is patient. It is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So if Act 1 of the Song of Solomon was a falling in love, and Act 2 was a uniting in love, then scene scene 3 is the conclusion of the Song of Solomon. And what we would call this act would be a growing in love. A growing in love. Having a God-honoring marriage, it takes work. And I hope that I never get to the point where I'm comfortable in my relationship, not only with my spouse, but also with God. We should constantly be growing. I think that it, should be, that it would be wise for those of us who are married to make it a goal to continually pursue intimacy until death do us part. If we don't, there's an enemy who, would seek to, who is on the prowl, who would seek to kill, steal, and destroy that which God has deemed holy and good. In chapter 7, we see that the Solomon, we see that Solomon for the third time begins to describe his, his wife's beauty. It was almost like he was infatuated by her. This time we see it described in greater detail, though. He starts in verse 1 by, state, by saying, How beautiful are your, hand, are, are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Gentlemen, I think it's really wise here to note that he took note of her footwear, um, and maybe we can also praise our spouse's wardrobes. He then continues, continues to praise her beauty from the feet in verse 1 all the way up to her head in verse 5. We see that Solomon noticed everything about her. And every detail is a delight and a joy and a blessing to his soul. The more that he knew her, the more that he loved her. And I think that we too can learn that we can grow in the knowledge of our spouses. And and we can also take delight in the things that brings us about them that brings our souls joy. In an article entitled Five Truths That Children Won't Know About Marriage Unless We Teach Them, author Linda Cardamus says that marriage is under attack in our culture. From the sexual revolution to the rise of the, div- of the divorce rate to fight over same-sex marriages, this precious institution is being bombarded from all sides, and our children are caught up right in the midst of it. Hollywood, the media, our school systems, and sometimes even fellow Christians are constantly portraying an untrue version of marriage to today's children and teens, and it's taking a toll. Most girls spend lots of time imagining their fairy tale wedding, yet know very little about how to actually build a happily ever after. We are failing to give the next generation a proper perspective of marriage, a perspective that they desperately need. But we can change that. We can start talking to our kids and our grandkids and our Sunday school classes and our youth groups about this important institution. They need to grow up with a firm foundation in this area. It's not something that they can just start working on after they say, I do. To keep our marriages strong and healthy and growing and from coming under this attack that this author speaks so clearly about, I think that we must be intentional about growing in our relationships and teach what we learn to our children as we grow. I think one element to growth comes through spiritual growth together. While we have a long way to go, Casey and I try to make it a point about every day to pray together, to pray for each other, to pray with each other. And prayer can be a beautiful and intimate Um, thing that can cause growth that can also only be attributed to growth in God. And like most things in life, we have to practice to make it work. We have to practice and figure out what works and what doesn't. In a marriage, we must talk. We must listen. We must work. We must toil. We should laugh. We should cry. We should pray. We should seek God's guidance in the midst of it all. We should allow God to intervene in all areas of our lives. 
Let's build a love that lasts forever. As we grow together, let's model the, for future generations what a God-honoring marriage is and should be like. Solomon and Shulamite grew in their love for each other as they set out on their paths as husband and wife. We should be wise to cultivate a love that is priceless because real love, true love, cannot be bought. It does not have a price tag. It is not for sale. Solomon tells us in chapter 8, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Our song ends with this bride asking her shepherd king to again come and to be with her. The final verses of Song of Solomon, in, in, in verse 14 of chapter 8, it says, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spies. It's very interesting to me that as Song of Solomon concluded with this invitation for uh, her beloved to come, the Bible also ends in the exact same way. In Revelation chapter 22, it says the bride twice asks for the bridegroom to come to, to, come to her and for her. In chapter 22, verse 17, it says the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. In chapter 22, verse 20 of Revelation, it also says he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then, and only then, will God's great love song and story be complete. The greatest of Solomon's songs ends by pointing us to the great day and to the climax of history. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we wait. If you have questions about anything that I preached on today, pastors David Beatty and David Holcomb will be more than happy to answer those for you. If you are here today and your marriage is struggling, my encouragement to you would be to avoid doing life alone. Find somebody that you trust and ask, trust and ask them to come along you in your journey and pray with you and pray for the state of your marriage. The practical advice that I think that we can take from this is to aspire to grow through prayer and discipleship. Pray and ask God to make you and your spouse more holy rather than more happy. And I'm convinced that as you and your spouse together make strides in making your marriage become more centered around Christ, that the happiness and the joy will follow as well. If you're married and you feel that your marriage is coming unraveled, the little, perhaps the little foxes have become giant monsters, I would encourage you to reach out to, to us at the church for some recommended Christian counseling. It's my belief that the church should have a statistic that defies culture's divorce rate. Marriage is hard, and it is hard work to get a marriage to a good spot, and then it's even harder to keep it there. And that's why I am personally excited uh, to let you know, to give you a, a save the date, a sneak peek about, sneak peek about something coming down the line in September. Uh, we are going to have a marriage enrichment event here at the church on September 19th. We are going to offer a marriage enrichment uh, video-based simulcast called Marriage Night here at the church with child care provided. Registration is open to come as all singles or couples. Whether you are engaged or you've been married for 
a month or 50, you've been married for 50 years, or this date night is going to be one that you will not want to miss. Matt Chandler and his wife and the parrots and the Edwards and comedian Michael Jr. will help us enrich our marriages and bring us closer to God. So save the date for September 19th. Also, right now, media just released a bunch of really great uh, video-based sermon uh, discipleship studies that you can check out for free as well. And as I started, it stated at the beginning of today's message, marriage is not intended to be the ultimate pursuit for God's children. While these relationships are a source of great joy and fulfillment, they are a mere shadow of the love that is found in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, marriage is only a temporary relationship that embodies the love of Christ through the sacrificial service and self-love. This song points us to a bridegroom king whose name is Jesus, a bridegroom who loved the church, his bride, and he gave himself for her. So maybe today's message is not about a relationship at all with somebody here on this side of eternity, but it's about God wanting to have a desperate relationship, uh, desperately wanting to have a relationship with you. Maybe that's what today's sermon is all about. Because intimacy with Jesus does not just happen the same way that intimacy with a spouse does not just happen. If we desire to have a great relationship with somebody, we have to work and intentionally cultivate and consistently, proactively pursue it. We don't just drift into intimacy. If anything, we're prone to drift apart from other people. So what is something that has come between you and your spouse that perhaps needs to be addressed? What is something that has come between you and God that perhaps you need to tackle head on? Let's lay those at the foot of the cross together. God, we thank you for this time where we can learn about you. We thank you that you are a God that is not only for marriage, but you are for um, intimacy, and you bless it and you call it holy. For those of us who have little foxes who have crept into our marriages, Lord, we ask for grace and forgiveness. We pray that we would dethrone those things that have captivated our hearts and drawn us apart from our spouse and that we would intend and instead turn to you. That we would um, lay those struggles at the foot of the cross. And that you would take those away from us. For the marriages that seem like they are hopeless, God, would you, the God of hope, intervene in a way that would provide exactly what that couple needs, what that person might need to, to offer the first words, to ask for forgiveness, to say I'm sorry, to bring about words of encouragement, to practice praising instead of words of condemnation. For those who are not yet married and wish to be, God, I pray that you would be surrounding them with great examples of people who would spur them onward, who would be the example setters, who they would wish to have a marriage like that one day. God, we thank you that you first loved us. We thank you that you um, gave us your son, Jesus, who loved the church the way that we are called to love our spouses. Lord, we thank you for this time together where we could learn and we could grow. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.